Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits. After months of military build-up and brinkmanship on Ukraine's border, Russia is kind of ratcheting up the pressure now on its ex-Soviet neighbour, threatening to destabilise Europe and draw in the United States. And Russia has been tightening its military grip around Ukraine since last year, as many people know, amassing tens of thousands of troops, uh, equipment, artillery on the country's doorstep. And the aggression has sparked warnings from US intelligence officials that a Russian invasion could only be imminent at this stage. Now, I am not going to claim to know everything about it because I don't. It was never one of my things that I had a huge history or interest in the history of the world or wars. But one man who does is Declan Power, who's a security analyst. And Declan, I suppose for everybody watching this over the last few weeks, you know, we're led to believe that this could be the next thing after the Cold War. Uh, and we don't really understand the ins and outs of it. So maybe I suppose a little bit of history first before we get to the latest developments in what's happening in the Ukraine. Well, <clears throat> you could say, how long is a piece of string now, or how far does one go, want to go back? But let's let's just go back to the end of the Cold War, really, uh, you know, in the early 90s, when the Soviet Union fell apart. <clears throat> and a whole lot of small states that were subsumed into the Soviet Union, against their will, uh, sought to establish themselves as independent states. And they would include the Baltic states, who are now our partners in the European Union, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, and a number of other states, the Czech Republic, which, uh, you know, or rather Czechoslovakia, which became uh, a number of, of states, uh, and all that, that break-up. So most of those states uh, became independent. And the new Russia, when it started to get back on its feet and reassert itself, expected those small states uh, to become vassal states that they would not be able to survive politically or economically uh, without being latched onto Russia's coattails. And, you know, if we want to look at it from an Irish context, I mean, a little bit like the newly independent Ireland, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's arguable how independent were we. We controlled nothing on external defence. We still used the pound sterling. And uh, we were very much still within the British sphere of influence. And then things evolved and changed, as we know, with our own history, largely in a very positive, benign way. Mm. Whereas those former Soviet states, they didn't, there was none of the benignness that Western Europe gave, gave us. Uh, they I mean, well, look, the war, the war, well, the war was kind of centred, I suppose, on the stages of Crimea and parts of Donbass, which are internationally recognised as part of the Ukraine. I suppose, and I suppose tensions between Russia and the Ukraine kind of came around, well, most of that came along around well, 2021 and 2022. Yeah, the, the tensions between Russia and Ukraine are coming, are on foot of what I was talking about there with regards to these states that Russia could not wear the fact that they wanted to have their own agency, they wanted their uh, their self-autonomy, their self-determination. And there had been a number of, 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 of aggressive acts by uh, the Russians against those uh, states, including a cyber attack on Estonia in 2007 uh, over issues to do with a pipeline, and Russia didn't like the way they were behaving. But, but, so why, this, but, why, but why now, Declan? I mean, look, the Ukraine has been officially declared itself an independent country, you know, in 1991, which was a long time ago now. So why suddenly in the last two years have Russia decided to defend these two particular parts of the Ukraine? I mean, and I know they joined NATO, the Ukraine joined NATO last year, and that's why we're now currently involved in this. Now, but no, the, uh, sorry, no, no, they didn't join NATO, Ukraine. Uh, but the Ukraine didn't join NATO. Yeah, well, Ukraine they, they, they not join NATO. NATO in 2020, though. No, no, and, and actually, in, in many respects, uh, 
we should be glad they haven't uh, because it would mean NATO would be absolutely committed to, uh, to defending them and have to put troops on their soil. But you put your finger on the pulse of the issue. Because all of the other states, smaller states, were looking to join both the European Union and NATO, Russia, uh, Russia wasn't, hadn't expected that uh, in, the, in the 90s. And they, had, they claimed they had some sort of a, <clears throat> an unofficial agreement with uh, NATO that they wouldn't encroach up to their borders. However, each state has a right, each sovereign state has a right to make its own decisions. And Russia couldn't control that. But what they did try to do was control Ukraine. That was a step too far as far as they were concerned. So they actively tried to undermine their ability to be considered for membership of the European Union and NATO. And they have decided that they're drawing, drawing a line. They don't want uh, Ukraine becoming a member of NATO because it would undermine Russian security. That's the Russian side. However, the Ukrainians are looking at the way Russia has behaved uh, consistently since the 90s and even way before that and feel that the only way they can guarantee guarantee their stability, autonomy and independence is to be members of both the European Union and, uh, and NATO. And they have consequently been looking to the West rather than seeking to have any relationship with Russia. Now Russia is... So this is more than just about the Ukraine, really. It's about Russia wanting to push back against the West to reassert itself. Well, well uh, Vladimir Putin has now declared, of course, he's now declared, and this is obviously what's uh, it's happened in the last 24 hours, more, more or less, and what's really pushing the agenda now, that he's declared that he recognises the independent two separatist held regions in the eastern Ukraine and was sending in the troops. So he's now admitted this is what he's doing. Now, you know, I, I listened to Simon Coveney during the, the news there talking about the fact that they don't accept uh, Putin's excuse that they're peacekeepers going into the area because they're mm-hmm. using tanks and helicopters. But did we not use tanks and helicopters, you know, as peacekeepers and the UN not use tanks and helicopters when we went into Lebanon and other such countries? Did we not have, you know, military? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, so I, why, I why, think ca- particularly... why is it, what's the difference in that respect? I mean, is it just because we believe Putin is the big bad man? Uh, or is it? Is it? Can indeed they be? Could they be peacekeepers? No, no, no. I, it, it is a nonsense to say they are. But I think it was very foolish and uh, it, it, sort of an immature statement by Sam Coveney to focus on the hardware they're using. Because you're quite right. I mean, there there are international peace enforcement missions that have used very, very heavy duty, effective military hardware. It's about mandate. There is no, you know, in any peacekeeping missions, there is both you know, a UN mandate and a level of acceptance, uh, even in a peace enforcement mission. And there is a resolution uh, and a status of forces agreement. There is not, this is just Russia sending in troops and deciding to declare them peacekeepers. But the, the, the reality is they're sending troops in, and this is something that most people in the security space that we expected to see over the last while, that the Donbass region, which is the eastern region, bordering Russia, you know, from Ukraine, <clears throat> is, uh, has been a de facto piece of Russian territory since 2014. So there's 150,000 the Russian, Russian troops there now, uh, encircling yeah, it. Like, regular, it's like a horseshoe shape. Yeah. Okay, now, yeah, now, I suppose, from Ireland's point of view, the Taoiseach Michal Martin has said that he would stand in solidarity with the Ukraine. He said the Irish government has branded Russia's recognition of two separatist Ukraine regions as a blatant violation of the Ukraine's territorial integrity. A lot of people online reacted yesterday to the Taoiseach statement, particularly on Twitter, um, saying that what happened to Ireland being a neutral state? Now, I know we are part of NATO. So what happened? Oh, we're sure we're going to say we're not part of NATO. I know we're part part of the European Union, the EU. So, I mean, so are we we neutral or are we not neutral? 
No, we're not neutral, and we never have been neutral. Uh, and so, you know, all those people that are getting all bent out of shape, well, like, you know, they've been living in cloud cuckoo land. Maybe they should pick up a book and read it. Maybe they should take a history course. Uh, the phrase that this country uses, which I personally find ridiculous, is we're militarily neutral, which is like saying we're, you know, I'm a little bit pregnant. Um, <laughs> I'm a little bit pregnant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't, you're, you're either you're completely aloof from communities of nations, in, in pursuit of your uh, nirvana of neutrality, or you decide that on a practical basis and on a moral basis that you decide to uh, work in concert with other nations. Now, we made that decision a long time ago, particularly when we joined the European Union, that we were going to, uh, and indeed the UN as well. But, we, we were but, yeah, but when we joined the European Union, we still had that, that we still held on to our neutrality. That was part of the agreement when we joined the EU in the first place, wasn't that? Uh, it was. It wasn't so much of an issue. Funnily enough, what was stated, uh, and you see, people have very selective memories. Uh, the then uh, Taoiseach of the day stated that at some point in in, in the future we may have to uh, commit to a European form of defence, and that uh, you know that we would kind of work towards that day. There are lots of uh, examples uh, of, of where Ireland was quite willing to to change its stance on on defence. For instance, after the Second World War, we. Uh, presented a, a, a plan for a bilateral um, defence treaty with the US rather than join NATO when the, uh, the US invited us to join NATO. But we said, well, we can't do that because it would involve guaranteeing the border in Northern Ireland. And the US turned us down at the time. They didn't want to complicate things. So this idea that we've been some sort of uh, holier-than-thou and Irish exceptional stance on uh, neutrality is nonsense. But can we come back, just come back to the point here? We've always felt that we've always shown moral support in certain situations, which makes sense in that nobody's expecting Ireland to commit troops or anything like that in a situation like this. We don't really but have small, them as such, do we? No, I mean, no, well, I mean, well, we, have we, some, we do. No, no, but we, let's, no, no, let's not... I'm, I'm, no, I'm not diminishing force, the, I'm the role of the Irish Defence Forces, but I mean, what, we what don't have a military a comparison to other countries around Europe. Absolutely. And nobody, you know, where our troops have been used to great effect is in small, shall we say, surgical level uh, type of operations in, in sensitive situations. This is not a situation uh, for that. But what it is a situation is showing moral solidarity uh, uh, on the political stage uh, and backing up our European partners with any sanctions would make a huge difference to trying to trying to affect a positive outcome for another sovereign state that is trying to face down a profound level of, of uh, bullying that may end up with a lot of their own citizens being killed uh, if Russia does go ahead with a full-scale okay. invasion. Well, well, let's, get, the, let, let's move forward then to where we are today. And over the last three weeks, this threat has been constantly with us. Now, for a lot of people listening, they don't know whether that threat means something like World War II, something like the Cold War, something like Vietnam, or some sort of war that's f- sort of fought differently. Now, already we've seen support uh, given to Russia by other countries, uh, like, for example, China China said it supports Russia. Um, Syria has mentioned they support Russia. I mean, and now you have America, of course. A lot of people would say, by the way, things might be slightly different if it wasn't Joe Biden. If it was Donald Trump, I don't know whether it would be. Uh, Donald Trump or Joe Biden seems determined. Obviously, I don't know whether he wants war because America seemed to have this thing where, I don't know, uh, share prices tend to go up over there when there's war. Maybe that's a conspiracy theory, some description. But now you've also got the German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, has also stopped the progression of controversial Nord Stream pipeline following Moscow's actions uh, in the Ukraine. So, you're going to have sanctions put on other countries because they're supporting Russia. Where will this end up? Where do you see this in seven days' time? I think there's there's three 
possible options here, uh, or outcomes rather. Uh, one is that uh, if nothing is done uh, following Russia's de facto you know, annexation of, of another, another chunk, I mean, it's like a death of a state by amputation. They've already annexed the Crimea in 2014. They've now de facto annexed uh, the Donbass region. And that if nothing is done, that they will just roll across and occupy the whole of Ukraine. And despite Ukraine having a very well-trained, well-led armed forces, they won't be able to, uh, to stop that. And the Western world is not going to directly confront at this point in time. And what is likely then to happen is that you will have severe sanctions imposed on the Russians. And then you will have a de facto proxy war where the West will support regular Ukrainian forces. And there will be an ongoing war, just like you saw in Iraq in, in, in times past, or indeed in Afghanistan in the 80s when Russia was fighting the Mujahideen. And the Mujahideen brought the war to the Russians uh, because of Western support and won that war. And uh, so the same thing is likely to happen if, if this option or this outcome was to take place, because Russia would be bled dry on the, mm-hmm. uh, on the battlefields of Ukraine. That's one outcome. What, what's, the wor- other, what's the worst possible outcome? Well, the, worst, the worst outcome, and I think that outcome is only likely to happen if there's a full-scale invasion. I think the, 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 the most likely outcome is that the Russians will sit where they are sanctions will be imposed, in other words, of some sort of response, and there will be a, a standoff for a period, and the Russians will realise, well, is it worth our while going ahead uh, and being bled dry? The worst outcome is, is a follow-on from what I outlined in the, yeah. the, the first outcome, which is if they go in, there's a full-scale invasion. Uh, the West do not intend to get into a, a direct war, but through some series of errors, mistakes, there's a direct confrontation between okay. recognised combat forces of, of both West and Russia. And, and, and what, escalate. I mean, from our point of view, from Ireland's point of view, sorry, from a selfish point of view, what mm. should we be worried about? Obviously the price of gas, because obviously you've got, I think, whatever it is, 25% of the gas pipeline going through Russia. So uh, price of gas, uh, what else should we be worried about? Yeah, well, the good news here, and there is good news from an Irish point of view, is that we're probably one of the states that will be the, the least affected in in what happens. That's not to say that we wouldn't be affected. We're not as dependent on uh, Russian power. We we don't get uh, our main source of power from Russia the same way. I know the EU have been negotiating with Nigeria and other places for other sources for gas and and oil as well. And and Europe can, and Europe can find, you can manage in in other ways. There would be parts of Europe that would be, if we did have to cut uh, those gas supplies through a form of sanctions, end the Nord Stream uh, flow, uh, Europe can survive. Uh, and Ireland in particular is uh, is the least, uh, one of the least likely to be directly affected by that. Our, but, our but you don't, you do, but you don't see, there. Declan, I mean, there's doomsday people out there, for example, typing all over Twitter at the moment and all over the internet. Yeah, you don't yeah, see, a, 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 you, know, you don't see the day where we're going to see Russian planes flying over Ireland, bombing the UK or anything like that. That's, you know, what we would have seen, I suppose, in World War II. That's not what you predict at any stage is going to happen. No, well, no but uh, what I will say is this, and what we have learned by the... Uh, Russian projection of force uh, when they were going to go to off the southwest coast of Ireland for their naval uh, live fire exercises. That consequences that you know the the consequences of what happens to other nations have a fallout for us. And you know if if Britain or uh, you know the northern northern part of France were attacked by Russian air or naval forces, you know there would be consequences. Absolutely. For us. But, I mean, I, and in but relation, we're, not, we're not primarily in the firing. In, in relation to weapons of mass destruction, as they call them, I mean, are the Russians in possession, uh, do you believe, of many weapons of mass destruction? 
A uh, simple answer is yes. I mean, they, they still have their their nuclear. Force their nuclear deterrent, and their nuclear forces are very well drilled and trained. They upgraded the standards of that uh, in the aftermath of the Cold War because of fears of elements of them going rogue in some states that were becoming independent. Uh, they also have uh, effective chemical warfare. I mean, you saw a little taster of that with the Novichok use of Novichok mm. in Salisbury uh, against Skripal, and uh, you know. The, the Russians you know, are, 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 can be quite ruthless in the use of that. However, those are doomsday scenarios. You would have to have a number of things happen before it would get to that extent. Uh, I don't think that's likely. Okay. Um, you mentioned the Chinese. I think they're, they're an important element to watch in this. While there's been claims of Chinese support for the Russians, if you actually look and analyse what they're saying, they've been very non-committal and they've been very careful about watching what's happening and deciding what will suit them. And again, on a positive note, I don't think it suits China to see their markets in the West uh, destroyed. Finally, in relation to Joe Biden, um, there's mixed views on how Joe Biden and Camilla are handling this. Or Camilla, should I say, are handling this. (laughs) Camilla, Camilla. Uh, Camilla. A a UK-US relationship. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so I mean, a lot of people believe that he's quite determined, uh, obviously that he believes Russia's the enemy and quite determined to go in there. And others are saying, well, look, if Donald Trump was around, this wouldn't be happening. He's mad enough to sit down and talk to Putin. So, I mean, because they're probably on the same level of madness. So in saying that, do you believe this is making a difference to the situation that Biden maybe is a little bit too keen uh, to go in there and uh, almost determined to start a war? No, I, I don't believe that narrative at all. I think that's very unfair on Biden. I'm not saying that he's not deserving of criticism, but I think uh, if the roles were reversed, I think Donald Trump would uh, be completely acquiescent and you would see uh, you know, the Russians emboldened and uh, that part of Eastern Europe in a very precarious state, and it would lead to a complete diminution in security. And uh, it would be bad news for everybody, particularly those of us in the European Union. I think Biden needs a win on the basis that he made such an absolute, uh, you know, cock-up in mm-hmm. Afghanistan in the, in the ending of, of that phase of American involvement. I, I don't think when people say he, he's not, he does not want to commit, have to commit U.S. troops uh, or, or overseas NATO forces go into a head-to-head here. What he wants to do is restrain uh, Russia. Uh, and uh, and I think any right-minded thinking, any you know person with a, a, a cursory grasp of what's going on here would want to see the same same thing here. The, the argument that is made by apologists for Russia that it was NATO encroachment, forget the fact that there's a bunch of states here, like ourselves, small states that want to have agency and you know decisions uh, or uh, determination self-determination and to make choices about what direction they want to go and uh, with with good reason and with sound no, we've seen that in evidence. Northern Ireland for many years and it's a similar situation I suppose in that respect yes I know. I think yeah, exactly yeah. it's not in the same level but well, yeah, of course, yeah. the same I, and, so, and I, just to mention as well the red carpet is out obviously in advance of the arrival of the Taoiseach Michal Martin at Bundestag in Berlin as we speak so he's heading over there obviously um, so, the best, so the best way to resolve this is to maintain European unity in the face of this aggressive bullying. And when I say maintain unity, not in a, in a warlike way, but, you know, be prepared to apply sanctions, hold together. The Russians got a bit of a surprise when most of Europe kicked out a few diplomats over the Skripal affair. You know, the, the mm. sanctions 
are probably the most effective weapon. But you, you don't uh, see you don't see used. a stage for the for the uh, uneducated on war like myself and many of our listeners because we watch this on television and we, we don't know the ins and outs with like yourself and many other people who would be analysing this on a regular basis. Um, you don't see a situation where basically we'll have fighting on the beaches. I mean, I don't think that's how we conduct war or that's how war will be conducted in the future. Uh, no, I, I don't see that happening in this case. But I will throw in one other thing. Uh, you're talking about it, looking at it from an analytical point of view, and, and yes, I am. But um, maybe unlike unlike many who, who talk and analyse about these things, uh, you know, peering out from the lofty halls of academia, I've you know had my boots in the ground in enough places, uh, working with either the uh, EU, UN, or various other organisations, both in uniform when I was in the army and then as an advisor with the UN. And I've seen if there's one thing that I've seen with regards to conflicts. Uh, particularly you know, uh, where there's a civil element involved uh, and when there's bad blood, is the potential for unintended consequences, something to be misinterpreted, and then things to escalate very quickly. Uh, yeah, and th- that's the problem. When you deploy huge amounts of men, material, and uh, munitions, uh, all it takes is one stupid middle-ranking officer to misinterpret an order. Uh, all it takes is for one uh, guided missile operator to press the wrong button uh, or not to interpret a, a radar. I think, I think Vietnam is a good reminder of all that, by the way, probably. Well, yeah. well you don't even yeah. have to think back to 2014. Uh, your your listeners will no doubt remember. Uh, a Malaysian airliner got shot down because a Russian missile crew who were, you know, dis- who were working with the separatists as such, but they were a regular uh, Russian army missile crew who weren't connected up to the proper grid for those kinds of missile systems. They're designed to be used collectively. And this was being used in a unilateral way to help these, these rebel separatist forces. They thought they were uh, locking on to a, a Ukrainian military transport aircraft. Instead, it was a Malaysian uh, airliner, and they blew it out of the sky. Now, it didn't start... It didn't escalate the conflict, but it raised a lot of tensions at the time. And I don't know how many uh, 70, 80 or 150 innocent people were blown out of the sky. And yeah. that's what can happen when you've uh, when you these kinds of standoffs. Listen, Declan, thank you very much indeed, and I appreciate the explanation today. I think you've educated a lot of us here today. All right, thank you, including myself. Pleasure, and I take uh, care. Thank you very much indeed, Declan Power. Now, um, I know a lot of people are concerned about it, and a lot of people are concerned how it will affect them. And as you heard Declan saying, he doesn't believe it will affect us. Ireland will probably be the least affected country in Europe. Hopefully, it doesn't come to a doomsday scenario or worst case scenario, as Declan rightly pointed out. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi award winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic.